good leaders do the things that make their team most successful. And it's about the team, not about themselves. Yes, you're ultimately graded on the success or failure of that unit. But if you make it all about you, that unit's going to fail. And so ensuring that the team is trained up the appropriate way, that you've put them in enough scenarios that you know, if, if, if something happens, it's not their first time being there, if you will, uh, they know how to react. It becomes muscle memory and it's, it's making sure you prioritize the unit over any one individual, certainly yourself. And I think that's something that I've always carried with me of, I want to make sure the team is, has everything they need to be successful. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome 
overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Business Method Podcast. And our guest today is the co-founder of a $1.7 billion company that operates in the health tech space. They serve in 44 states and the United States have over 720,000 services available through their networks and have provided over 18 million people with wraparound support for their health. The company is Unite Us and Taylor Justice is our guest. He's one of two men that built this billion dollar behemoth of a business. He's on the podcast today. Taylor, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show. I'm actually really happy to have you here and appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with the community of listeners. Let's start it off kind of opening it up like this. For the listeners, could you explain to us exactly what your company Unite Us is doing and why it's grown so fast into the company that it is? Yeah. So Unite Us is a software platform that connects multiple sectors together that are may have been historically siloed. So think of government, think of community resources, think of healthcare. They all work usually with the same individual or family, but yet they don't know what's going on across uh, different services that might be outside of their four walls. And yeah. so our software platform connects those organizations together in a seamless way so they can securely exchange data around that shared individual. Yeah. And so historically within human and social services, they are making referrals or trying to coordinate through wall full of brochures, uh, phone calls, emails, sticky notes. They don't have technology. And your bigger government systems and healthcare systems are usually siloed as well or locked off. And so uh, if I'm dealing with an individual that like in the United States that's on Medicaid, that's also receiving SNAP benefits for food, that's also engaging with uh, a local church or uh, another local community-based organization and also dealing with the healthcare entity, there is no one record for that individual across all of those different entities. And so it makes it very difficult for those different groups to kind of have that full picture and provide that full wraparound care for that individual or family. We provide visibility to that by connecting all of those organizations and their systems of record on our platform to ensure that no one's fallen through the cracks. So you would think like, I, I, I've seen this firsthand. Of course, I think most of us have, you know, my dad is going through some health issues and there's no unifying platform between doctors and clinics and, and all the medical professionals giving him advice. And it, it seems mind blowing that like the family has to communicate this from, from one organization to the next organization. And it, it explains such a huge pain point. And I think why the company's grown into to what it is today. Yeah. Before we dive into more of it, I want to ask you a couple of fun questions here. I know we had Blake Hall on the podcast, which is a friend of yours a couple of months ago. Yeah. And I, uh, I wanted to ask you, do you know any other billion dollar founders besides Blake and, and your co-founder? Yeah, I know. I, I know a few. the The connection with Blake is we all started around the same time. Yeah, uh, and Blake and Unite Us uh, initially just started in the veteran and military community. Right. Blake's company was originally Troop Swap. Uh, we were Unite Us, but again, only focused on that veteran and military uh, sector. 
and then saw that what we were applying to those markets was applicable for a much larger and broader uh, scope. Yeah. And so uh, engaging with with Blake along the journey, uh, again, because we did it almost in the same chronological order. But as I've grown, I've started to connect with other founders in different sectors. Uh, I have a buddy uh, who uh, was the CTO at Dutchie, also a, a multi-billion dollar company. And as I've grown, I've started to connect to other uh, other founders just through the the venture capital networks uh, uh, that you know people have invested in us and, and been able to uh, kind of uh, engage with those portfolio companies um, where you know we meet once a year or every every quarter and kind of just share best practices or vent a little bit because at times it can be a little bit lonely when when you're building something and the the, the emotional roller coaster is real. So what would you say, Taylor, are are some of the bad habits of billion-dollar company founders? That is a great question. I don't know if they're bad habits. So I, 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 hate, to, I hate to kind of classify someone else's journey or what decisions that they make because I don't have the full context because I hate it when it's done to me. Yeah. Uh, I try to provide context. I can give you, I think, bad habits that I've fallen into. Yeah, that I try to that I try to correct. Let's do that. Um, so when you scale, there's a lot of things you have to deal with. So we went and raised our Series C, raised 150 million dollars as part of that, that raise. And the thesis was like we're in growth mode, and we want to build uh, solutions that can go end to end because we saw that our solution was uh, our core platform, our one product was super powerful. But there's things you needed to do on the front of that front end of that product and things you need to do on the back end of that product. So as part of our growth thesis, we went out and acquired two companies. Through that acquisition, you now have, which let me set the context of Unite Us just in, in, in itself. We are in a sector that is historically not tech forward. Mm-hmm. So when we hire individuals, we're hiring folks from healthcare, we're hiring folks from the nonprofit community, we're hiring people from government. And we're hiring people from technology. Those sectors and those paces are all a little bit different. And so you might have an individual, and the analogy I always give is like running. I might have an individual that can run a six-minute mile, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're really uh, efficient. I might have somebody else that came from a sector that didn't wasn't as fast-paced. So right now they run an eighteen-minute mile, Mm -hmm. uh, but they think they might run a six-minute mile. And then you have all these variations, but you're now trying to get the company to all run together. And so you can only run as fast as the the 18 minute miler. Right. But you're, you're, you got to train and get everybody there, but you also don't want to just have a training regimen that then has that six minute miler start to come back to like a nine minute mile. And so you're trying to like create a culture and, and get everybody on that same pace. That's just internal to unite us. And then what we did is we found two other companies that also had different paces and then layered that in into uh, what we were doing. And they also had different products or different solutions or different variations. We acquired one competitor called NowPal and merged that with the organization, but they did things a little bit differently. And then we acquired an analytics company, which is completely outside of what we've traditionally done. Uh, and their focus area was a little bit different. And we tried to meld them all together. So we went from around 200 people to a little over 1,000 in almost 12 months. Wow. So you're adding all of these individuals, you're trying to figure out how they all mesh together. And it's just like a, a it's a big haze. 
because you know, and everyone tells you and everybody that you talk to is it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to figure out and you're like, Oh, I got this. You know, we built this <laughs> business. I'm fine. I'm, there's, there's no, there's no problem. Um, and then you get into it and it's like, Oh man, this is much harder. And it makes it even harder for everybody else. If you aren't giving over a little bit of control to your team and to your other leaders to then manage their functions. And so where I was seeing, I was creating a bottleneck is decisions. We were taking so long to make decisions because I had to be the last decision maker, Okay, which then creates a bottleneck, which then creates frustration, which then can create a lack of trust within the team. And then this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. Then you're just like big corporate organizations. Like, okay, I got to take a step back. And that's very hard because running a 200 person company to a thousand plus person company is completely different. And for so long, I was in the weeds on everything and I knew everything. That was my competitive advantage when I went and sold, when I went in speaking engagements and other things. And so you have to train yourself to let go of certain things and then go to the place that your company needs you the most. And that means you sacrifice certain things or that sacrifices your own knowledge, but that's the only way that you can scale. And so my bad habit, back to your question, was not realizing that quicker and not realizing that I can't do everything as fast as I want. And I knew that like we're 10 years into this. January, we hit our 10-year mark. It took us basically seven years for people to even realize that this was a sector to care about yeah, and that we were really on to something. So I don't know why I thought, well, I can just go solve this in 12 months. Uh, and do that as quickly as possible without kind of taking a step back and realizing, okay, maybe I need to reassess, you know, how I'm uh, approaching the organization and how I'm uh, giving guidance rather than trying to do everything myself. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's, you want to take advantage of your scale, uh, but if you don't get out of your way, you can't. I've, I've seen other organizations do that and it's disheartening to say the least. It's, it's actually... Yeah. Uh, I've lost, I've been involved in organizations like that and I've lost respect for the culture, maybe not so much the culture, but, but some of the leaders in that. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate because it's like people like leaders in the organ, this organization really wanted to do not the, the founders, but other leaders that were stepping up in the organization really wanted to do more. And the founders just like, because they couldn't make decisions or everything had to funnel through them. It, it, uh, stopped you know, progress really. Yeah. So I'm curious. Well, hey, there's let's... two, there's two things there's two things on that. And it's why I don't want to be, I, why I don't want to point to other founders or other yeah. unicorn businesses and say, Oh, this is where we all do the wrong things because there's so much context yeah, that is missed, especially even where we are. We were dealing with so many other things that the majority of the company had no idea about. Yeah. And so if we come into a meeting, I'm like, oh, we got to do the X, Y, and Z and didn't provide that context. Everyone's just like, what in the world is going on? And so it's, it's, it's one of those areas where it's very difficult to, or I've learned to not rush to judgment of mm-hmm. other organizations or even customers or even government, because I just don't have all of the, the, the context there. But again, it's, it, it comes back to, you have to recognize where you create issues. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we're building a unicorn uh, or we've built a unicorn company. Yeah. That is, that is, that is not something that happens every day. 
And so for folks that are here, I want people to always say that Unite Us was their top one or two job ever, Mm. ever. Mm. So I want them to have fun and I want them to be like this to be memorable and be like, okay, I, I, I can hang my hat on, on what I did here. And why I say one or two is I don't expect people to be at Unite Us forever. I'm going to be here forever because this is my passion. This is what I care about. Yeah. But if other people want to go build the next unicorn or the next business, like that is a badge of honor to me. If someone goes and gets another job and they got to the top of that list because they have Unite Us uh, on their resume, that's like something super cool for me. But why I say number two is I want them to always point back. It's like my time at Unite Us was so great because of X, Y, and Z. And if people aren't having fun, and if leaders aren't leading or resembling the leader that they wish they had, then you're not going to have a fun culture. And this is going to be stressful because it's already stressful. Why make it worse? And so I want people to, to, to feel ownership, to be a part of building something and then change their experience similar to what you had. It's like, I don't want people to lose respect for me. I don't want to, uh, my other co-founder or for my leaders, uh, because they didn't recognize all of these other things. Like we have full control to build the company that we want. Yeah. There's no limits there, but people get stuck in their head of just like, oh no, I'm, I'm only here and this is what I need to focus on. And I just think that's, that's short-sighted. What was that process for you like personally to let go of that control of being in the weeds with everything and starting to you know empower the other leaders around you in the company? I would say I'm still in recovery. You know, it's, 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 it's a, a rough it's, addiction, isn't it? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's tough because I'm a doer, man. I like, yeah. I like to get in and execute and that's not necessarily where the company needs me anymore. Now there's certain things, again, I got to go find where can I create the most value? Can I set the appropriate tone? Can I create a positive culture? Can I make sure people are having fun? Can I let people know where we're going? Because I have a vision for five, 10, 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And then can I make sure that I find the team that can then go execute on that and then find amazing leaders and then get out of their way. Like the, the whole, was it the Steve Jobs cliche? It's like you hire good people not to tell them what to do. You hire good people to like go run and, and, and execute. And that's very hard to do, but it, it takes intentional effort to see those triggers of when they're happening, recognize that, and then take a step back. And it's awkward as hell because again, I'm in a sales scenario, I'm used to to jumping in and, and executing, or I'm in a, a team meeting and someone has an idea or a thought process. And I feel like I've learned how to uh, process information quickly and look at two, three, four, five different scenarios. And I know where ultimately that idea or uh, that process might have some flaws, but by me just kind of jumping in and be like, no, we're going to go this direction. It doesn't allow people to grow and to develop. Right. So like what I learned over the last seven years. And so I have to try to learn is like, how can I accelerate that learning path, but not overstep where I'm just giving people the answers and they don't have freedom of thought. But it's a it's an ongoing problem because when I or my co-founder or other executives lead and they they make a decision, like people follow and yeah. they take it as like sometimes they take it as the gospel. And so it's very dangerous. If you don't have that freedom where people can speak up and push back and, and also make their own decisions. You have to, uh, like I'm a doer as well. And so this is why I'm asking, and I actually, I actually, I'm a doer so much 
for a few years, I ran an event called Get Shit Done Live, where you just go, oh, and you, cool. <laughs> you just go do shit in your business for 10 days, right? It was a lot of fun. Anyway, like, I'm, more, I'm curious if there are ways that you can balance doing and getting shit done in your life where that could kind of like keep you on the spectrum or keep you balanced out because you have to let go of doing more in your business or more in the company. Does that make sense? No, it does. Uh, and this is something that I'm also, I also wrestle with because when it comes to unite us in my role and my job here, I'm relentless. Like I will, I travel four to five days a week mm -hmm. or, or, or like I was traveling that amount. And like I do day trips to the West Coast, which is literally impossible. Yeah. So you're doing like 36 hour, get there, then take the red eye home. Like that's, that's awesome. not yeah. uncommon. I'll yeah. I'll do it, I'll do it all day long. And I will I will I will push myself harder than anyone else, not because I'm better, because I'm just like this is this is what I care about. And you know, I'm the founder of this organization, but I make excuses for other things. Yeah. Like working out. Yeah. And, you know, I played college football. I was an infantry officer in the army, physical fitness. My entire life has always been a top priority. Right. But as I start to travel, I'll start to make excuses for myself. And so until recently, I'd be like, oh, well, I just took that red eye. I just want to sleep tonight. Or, you know, I, I've got this big meeting tomorrow at 8 a.m. You know, I don't want to wake up at five to go work out. I, I, I need to rest up and make sure I'm good to go. And that started to, become a habit to where the end of the year, I'm looking at myself and I'm like, I gained 25 pounds mm -hmm. and I'm just like, I don't feel good. And my, my mood will start to, sh uh, to change a little bit where I become a little bit more irritable. And it was my wife actually, who during the pandemic, I mean, she was doing like two a days, like working out all the time. And yes. I was just like, what are you training for? It's like, she's training <laughs> for the apocalypse. <laughs> But she, she said something to me. And it's just like this mental flip. She goes, I consider working out like me time, right? That's, that's like my gift to myself because I don't always want to do it, but it's like my chance to like have my own time where I'm just in my own head and doing something for me. And it's like those little, like little triggers. Yeah. And so I've started to get back into it where it's like, yeah, that, that it's the, it's the one time where I'm not like, consumed by something else, or I can, I, I can listen to music and just like, it's just like Taylor's own. And it's one of those areas that I, I need to better balance out where I am taking care of myself so I can do those crazy trips or, you know, spend time, but there's like the, the, the physical aspect of it, the mental aspect of, of working out where I just feel better. I have more energy. I see more positive. Uh, and it's also an area where I can get a little bit of frustration out and get some of the stress out. And so I need to, I'm, I'm at the early stages of getting back into it. I uh, still got some, some LBs to shed, but mm -hmm. it's one of those things where I'm trying to find this, this synergy. I don't think it's a, uh, it's a balance per se because things fluctuate all the time, but it's like making sure that I fit it in, even if it's just something small, it's, it's one of those areas that it's just like, it's just for, it's more for my mental health, not just my waistline. What what type of workouts do you like to do? Honestly, it depends on the day. My my go-to is uh, kind of getting back into my college football days of lifting or kind of like hit hit type of workouts. 
but I need to layer in a little bit of cardio here and there. So yeah. I'll usually do Monday, Wednesday, Friday are my, my lifting days. And then Tuesdays, uh, Thursdays are my, are my cardio days or rest days, depending on how I feel. I, I've got, I found a really great travel workout. I call it my hotel room workout and you can do it in a hotel room. That's what I call it. A hundred burpees in 10 minutes. And you're getting cardio strength training, you know, letting out aggression, you're getting a great sweat. Then you can hop in and do a cold shower afterwards, cool down and start your day. Like that's all you need when you travel. It's, it's a great workout. Yeah. yeah. So the, the worst exercise ever. Exactly. I, I, hate, I hate the levels of it. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. totally. But the sense of accomplishment after doing something like that, like everything else in the day is going to be pretty easy. Yeah. So I know you went to West Point and you played football there. And I'm, I'm not a military guy. Uh, I didn't grow up around military, a military family, um, you know, grandparents served, but, uh, that's about it. And, and I'm always curious about the allure of West Point. Like, I don't know that much at all about it. And I don't think a lot of people do unless they're in those circles. Could you describe what it's like? Because it seems like, you know, top grade A, you know, presidents have been there, Um, you know, a lot of successful military generals have gone there, even civil war generals, you know, uh, it goes back a long time. You know, what is the essence of West Point? Why is it so great? And, and just like dive into it a bit for us. Yeah. So I've always had an affinity for the military. My father was 30 years air force. He was a fighter pilot, flew F-15 strike eagles. And so I always knew that I would be in the military, but I didn't know how, uh, like, it wasn't like a set path. It's like, I'm going to go to West Point. And I grew up in Kentucky, ended up moving to, to Florida for middle school, high school, and was introduced to the game of football. I've never played it. I mean, Kentucky's all about basketball, although we started, Kentucky started to become a little bit of a football school, um, but it's known for basketball. And so I was fortunate enough uh, to, to be recruited to play at the collegiate level. And uh, Army was one of the the schools that came to my high school to sit down with me. And I didn't know much about West Point, even though I had an affinity for the, the, the military. I had this packet that they gave me once I met with the coach. And they actually pulled me out of English class to go talk to the coach. And then I went back to English class. And my English teacher at the time was not a huge fan of Taylor Justice. And probably because I wasn't a good writer or, you know, I asked a lot of questions that can seem you know, contrarian to, to what they were teaching. But I do, I remember I came back, I sat down at my desk and I had this packet and uh, it was like the first time I had like this ounce of respect from, or received this uh, respect from my teacher mm-hmm. where he was just like West Point. He goes, you have an opportunity to go there. And I was like, yeah. And I kind of walked through it and he's like, pretty cool. And like walked away and I was like, what is this place? So then I went up on uh, an official visit. It was my first of five official visits. And just there's something about, uh, I'm a big energy guy. Uh, and there was something about the energy there where I just felt like, oh, this is this is for me. And I think the allure are, are a few things. One, it's a institution of, around service. And there's a sense of purpose and a, and a call uh, to duty uh, to your country. And you know, that I think that pulls in a lot of folks. The special place about West Point is they give you a lot, right? They talk about they want to, to only recruit the, the cream of the crop. They want folks that commit to excellence and that want to be the best in their profession. 
And so they purposefully give you more than you can handle to see how you can handle it because you have military requirements, you have physical requirements, and you have academic requirements. And the academic requirements are no joke. And it's it teaches you how to prioritize your day and knowing that you can only focus on a few things. So where do you concentrate your effort? And then where do you, I don't want to say take a little bit of a gamble, but maybe put things on the back burner a little bit. And so it's, it's, it's a constant uh, training of, you know, stimulated chaos. And how do you, how do you manage that? What I've realized, uh, and they talk about, you know, West Point being an institution of leadership. It's all about people. It's all about how you uh, set a vision, you set a culture, you set a tone for the folks that you're, you're leading, because you know, when you graduate there, you're immediately going to be in charge of no less than 40 people uh, mm-hmm. that you need to command as a platoon leader. So you're always like kind of sharpening your sword, if you will, on when I get into that moment, what type of leader am I going to be? You're classically trained, if you will, on leadership uh, and how to deal with people. And 80% of success of any job is how you deal with people. And I think West Point is is great at that. Not that everybody that comes out of West Point is this amazing leader, because that's not necessarily the case. People get into leadership positions and I feel sometimes they just like take their brain out. Common sense goes away and it's just like, I'm in charge. You listen to me, which ultimately is a kiss of death. Because if you can't build a team where you are respected and you earn that respect, then you're never going to be able to reach your full potential. And I think West Point puts you in scenarios where you can train yourself on how to be a good leader, how to be a good follower as well, because you can't lead unless you uh, understand how to follow as well. Uh, And I think West Point just continues to put you in those different scenarios. And it makes you want to continue to learn. And it teaches you that like you're never going to know it all. You always have to have professional development and personal development. And West Point just continues to put you into those uh, into those scenarios. What do you think the biggest leadership lesson that you learned at West Point was that you use at uh, Unite Us today? There was a big term before it became cliche, which is servant leadership. You are there to make sure and remove obstacles for your team. And good leaders do the things that make their team most successful. And it's about the team, not about themselves. Yes, you're ultimately graded on the success or failure of that unit. But if you make it all about you, that unit's going to fail. Mm-hmm. And so ensuring that the team is trained up the appropriate way, that you've put them in enough scenarios that, you know, if, if, if something happens, it's not their first time being there, if you will. Uh, they know how to react. It becomes muscle memory. And it's, it's making sure you prioritize the unit over any one individual, certainly yourself. And I think that's something that I've always carried with me of I want to make sure the team is has everything they need to be successful and again it could go back to like the beginning here it's hard when you're like the doer and then you have uh folks but you got to recognize it and can you recognize it quick sometimes it's not as quick as you would like but once you recognize it let the team know that you've recognized it where you've created issues and then provide them context of where we're going to be moving forward and i think when you do that 
and you prioritize that team, all the other stuff starts to, to fall in place a little bit. Let's move uh, pages a little bit and talk about the growth and growing Unite Us until into what it is. Where'd the idea come from, Taylor? Yeah, so it's basically two different experiences that converged. So myself and my fellow co-founder both served. My co-founder was in the Air Force. I was in the Army. My story was I was medically discharged. So I was an infantry officer, was hurt, and then I was uh, separated from service because of my injury. Through and in coming out of West Point, you have a five-year active duty commitment, three years in active reserve. I made my three years inactive active to ensure I was an infantry officer because I wasn't the top of my class and then it goes by class rank of like what what branch you get. Uh, so I wanted to ensure. So I was I thought I was in for at least eight years. Before my two-year mark, I'm out of the military. And so I didn't really have a plan in place. And so as I was transitioning, dealing with the VA, and trying to find a new job and finding a place to live, kind of figuring out what I'm going to do in this quote unquote civilian sector, I was like, this should be a lot easier. I thought I was pretty smart. I had a really strong network, but it was still very, very difficult. And then as you start to peel back the onion a little bit, I, I land in Philadelphia, I get a job there, and I start volunteering at a veteran nonprofit organization that was literally only focused on physical fitness and social activities. But as you started to see folks come into this chapter, they had needs outside of what the, the, the chapter could facilitate, like housing issues, trying to navigate their GI Bill, somewhere in the justice system or, or, or in the, the local prison. Others had crisis scenarios of like, how do I feed my family or I'm going to lose my home? It's just like these real world issues and they range, right? You have your high flyers that just trying to, how do I go back to school to others that were like really struggling and connecting folks to those different resources was an administrative nightmare. I had this huge Excel sheet and I was just trying to literally go through and most folks had more than one need that needed to be addressed. And you try to follow up and uh, you realize, oh, this organization does provide that service, but there's eligibility requirement and this individual isn't eligible for it. So I got to go find somebody else. And then you multiply that by uh, tens uh, of people, then hundreds of people, then thousands of people. You start to realize it's like, oh man, this is this is a jacked up experience for for individuals. Very frustrating so, experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and the number one issue for folks that are transitioning from the military and connecting into the into the quote unquote civilian sector is not a particular service category. I.e., I need to find a job, or I need to find a house, or uh, navigate the GI or the VA benefits. It's how do I navigate all of these different services? Because there's 47,000 or 40,000 veteran nonprofit organizations that all provide different services. And like, how do I weave through through all of that? Yeah. So we said, okay, let's go solve that problem. And then the first thing that we built was we thought if we just created the most up-to-date list of resources in a community, we'd solve the problem for veterans. And so we created this list, we put it on a pretty map. And we just started sending uh, veterans and military families to these resources. And I always say the beauty of the veteran military community is they don't let you blow smoke. Uh, And they told (laughs) us it sucked. And the reason it sucked is there was no accountability on the back end. Meaning that organization that I was saying, hey, you should go connect to this, didn't know that that person was coming. And I didn't necessarily do the full mapping of all the services that they provide and all the eligibility requirements. So that individual that needed food might have to talk to three or four different organizations before they found the one that could actually solve their need. Or same thing for housing or utilities assistance or transportation or legal advice, like goes down the list. And then you throw thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people into that. 
that's just like a whole mesh of confusion and frustration. So what we realize is that if you want to better service the veteran military population, you have to better coordinate the organizations that they're trying to connect to. And I need to go solve a problem for them. So I need to, I need to coordinate the supply to then service the demand. And so we flipped our model and we said, we're going to build software that allows these organizations to better communicate to each other. Mm. And so our, for our first five years, we only focused on veteran and military population. And we only built networks in the community. Like we weren't selling to healthcare. We weren't selling to state governments. We were basically selling to big philanthropic organizations and foundations that wanted to fund this work because they were already funding all these different organizations, but wanted them all to work together. Yeah. And then as we started to bring on more and more orgs, you started to see orgs that came in that weren't just veteran and military serving. They were state and local government. They were healthcare. They were other institutions that serviced a larger population. And you realize that everybody had these issues of connecting to these different services or benefits or, or what have you. And so in 2018, we expanded the platform to be service provider population agnostic. If there were orgs within government, healthcare, and community that needed to coordinate care around a population, whatever that population was, we had a solution for. And that's when we really started to expand. So the old uh, business rule of thumb is, you know, focus on a niche, just like you guys did with the, the veteran yeah. population and, and then grow it until it comes to a point where you can expand into other uh, niches. Mm -hmm. Curious uh, with you guys, like, what was the tipping point that made you realize that you could expand from just the veteran population? And was there like a, a struggle from leaving the veteran population specifically into going into a more public, uh, yeah. you know, serving the general public? Yeah, the catalyst for us was in 2018, there was this term called social determinants of health that everybody started saying. And it was basically coined in the academic arena by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but healthcare really pulled it in. And social determinants of health is basically where you eat, live, pray, work, all of that. Everything that happens outside of the four walls of a clinical environment. And the analysis that they did was 80% of someone's overall health and well-being happens in the community. Mm -hmm. Do I have a roof over my head, food in my belly, um, employment opportunities, et cetera? 20% of your health happens in the clinical environment. And so there was this shift of, we need to better connect to these services. And the challenges that we ran into going into the SDOH space was it was still relatively new for these healthcare entities. Social care has been around for decades. These organizations have always been there. You have some of the largest uh, community-based organization, national nonprofits that have been around for a hundred plus years, Goodwill, 120 years, I think they've been around, but they've never been at the same priority level as healthcare. And so what we started to see and the challenges we ran into was one, oh, you're just veteran. That's not my population. So that's probably not going to work here. Two, they were five years behind us because they thought they just needed a resource director. If I know where the resources are and I can give it to somebody much quicker, I'm solving their problem. Uh, and we're like, no, no, you're not. And at that point, CMS, Center for Medicare, Medicare, uh, Medicaid and Medicare, had put out these accountable health communities, RFP, where they were paying these big healthcare entities, basically big hospitals, to screen individuals. And so they prioritized, let me just identify where people have social needs, and then let me give them a referral, i.e. a piece of paper or a digital piece of paper, and that will address their need. And they also define the referral as that's a connection. 
I've connected that person to that organization by giving them a piece of paper. Uh, so they never went the last mile. And so what we started to see were we're doing care coordination for human and social services. And everyone's like, get out of here. Like, it's very easy and simple to buy a resource directory and upload it into an electronic health record. Right. You know, you're basically just importing an Excel sheet. And that's all that they cared about. That's all they prioritized. And so what we had to do at that moment is uh, is show that the veteran military community is the perfect Petri dish of American society when you look at age, race, socioeconomic status. It is everybody. Mm-hmm. They come from all walks of life. And then two, you need to prioritize the outcome and stop worrying about referrals because referral is only going halfway. Can you prove that this individual has received the services that they're looking for? And so we had to fight against that because it wasn't a big budget line item for healthcare organizations or health plans. Most of them didn't even have a budget line item at all. They were still using it through their philanthropic or foundational uh, investment arm. And so we had to do a lot of, of convincing. And we got our first healthcare opportunity in upstate New York. Our second big uh, opportunity was with a visionary in the uh, health and human services landscape, Secretary Cohen. Uh, she was the Secretary of Health and Human Services in North Carolina, where she had a vision. She came from uh, CMS, where she had a vision where she wants she wanted to transform how we provide care, and realized that if you're going to help the a, a population be clinically healthier, then you have to make sure that they have good food, and you have to make sure that they have a roof over their head. And you have to make sure that they can pay their utilities. And so we set out to create infrastructure that aligned government, community, and healthcare. And so we went through an RFP process. We were selected for that. The next big evolution for us was Kaiser Permanente, a massive healthcare entity here in the States. They're across eight states and the District of Columbia. Their membership is 13 million people. But the communities that they uh, serve actually impact 68 million people across the country. And they had put out an RFP where they were looking for a resource directory. And we knew how big of a name the Kaiser Permanente uh, brand was, especially on the West Coast, but also in certain markets here on the East Coast. And we were so frustrated when we saw this RFP come out. And uh, Dan, uh, my co-founder, and I were kind of talking to each other. Like, uh, I was just like, no, we're not responding. He's like, oh, I think we have to. Let's just kind of get in there. But I was like, okay, if, if we're going to respond, we're going to throw a haymaker. We're going to go in and just be like, what you're asking for is the wrong solution. And here's why. You're going to cut mm-hmm. your nose off to save your face. Like, we're just, we're going to go in. It's like, and one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to be like, yeah, these, these folks just don't get it. We're done. Or they're going to be like, what in the world are they talking about? Let's at least bring them in. And then we'll have our, our chance to kind of make our case. And the latter happened where we were selected as the final three. And we had to do day-long presentations to the Kaiser Permanente leadership. And we just went all in, like literally just like got on our soapbox and we're explaining that how they were thinking about this solution isn't going to do anything. You're only going to be able to identify needs. If you want to actually address it, here's how you do it. And they bought in hook, line and sinker. Like they were, they, they've been such a great partner because they actually care. So much so, uh, they've only ever purchased two enterprise-wide solutions from like a system of record perspective. One is Epic through their electronic health record, and two is us. 
We are enterprise-wide across all of their networks uh, across the country. And they, they, they break up those eight states in the District of Columbia into 39 different like micro-regions, if you will. And so we're across all of that. And they made us sit down with then CEO Bernard Tyson, where he said, this is so important to us. We don't want to be just be the leader within healthcare. We want to be the leader within health and social care. And that really set the tone because once you have the state of North Carolina, the first ever statewide network uh, where you're connecting all of these resources, a big institution like Kaiser Permanente saying, I prioritize outcomes over referrals, that sets the tone. And then everybody else uh, starts saying, what is this? Let me learn about it. And, and then the pandemic hit shortly after. And what you started to see was the second and third order effects of the clinical response to COVID-19 was this unprecedented stress you started to see on the human and social service landscape. Kids losing access to food because schools are shut down. Yeah, uh, People losing employment opportunities and they can't pay their rent or their mortgage assistance. And we were able to, to replicate what we did in North Carolina 16 times just in 2020. Wow. Because people needed to know who was open. Can't do that with a resource directory. Uh, what services are available and did they actually provide those services? Yes or no. And it was just a big validation that the lack of appropriate public health infrastructure in this country is real. And Unitas is there to go solve that. Nice. That's such a great lesson that, you know, when you had the opportunity to, to partner up with Kaiser Permanente and, and you decided to, to, to go in and like you said, throw the haymaker and, go with your gut on what you knew was right versus like even just, you know, not answering them or, you know, creating a partnership without being completely honest about how it should look like that's, that's what I feel a lot of people lack and just like their own personal leadership to do that in their own lives. And I'm curious, like, what, what do you think gave you the courage to, to go ahead and do that, even though you're kind of like risking a lot? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple things. The first being unwavering belief in what we're doing. I know what we're doing is the right thing. I know that we're the only solution out there that's actually going to help people because we prioritize going that last mile. And our true north has always been, can I prove this person has received the services that they're looking for? If that is not your priority, then you can never say you're looking to address social determinants of health. You can only say you're looking to identify it. And in these big organizations, we, you have to have, again, that unwavering belief in what you're doing, but you also have to look at how are they going to judge you two or three years from now? I knew that if we only did referrals, they're not going to have any data. They're going to have search information of where people have needs, but you're not actually going to know what happened to them. And so where healthcare was only caring about return on investment, I'm sending somebody out into a black hole, hoping that they get the, the the services that they're looking for. I'm not helping them prevent people coming into the emergency room when a social service is more appropriate. I'm not helping them discharge somebody from the hospital when there's no clinical reason for them to be there because they don't have a, a place to stay or they don't have transportation back home in, in some of those other areas. And so it's like trying to look a couple years in the future of if I sacrifice where I'm trying to take this organization, is that actually going to help me in the long run? Because if I just built them a resource directory, when it comes time for renewal, I'm out the door because then I'm a commodity. 
because everybody else in the space was doing the same thing. And I think it's, you have to fight very, very hard for where you want an industry to go. Mm. And I can say from a technology perspective within the social care arena, we have set the tone. We spent a decade fighting our asses off to prioritize closed loop referral, meaning outcomes. Whereas where it started was just about making the referral and the most up-to-date resource directory. And we won that battle. 35 states now require closed loop referral networks in their Medicaid RFPs for health plans. Nice. Uh, and, it, and it's growing. And so now the, the focus is like, where do you want to take that sector? And if you want to build something special, it can't be status quo. And it has to be a little bit of a, of a push. And I, I will say, we created the social care software space. It was always there, but the magnitude of, of where it is right now and the dollars that are being invested into it, we've created that because people are prioritizing because we can prove that we can do it. And now we own over 72% of that market and continuing to grow because we did the right thing. And so you have to have a vision for where you want the sector to go, not just your business. And then how does your business fit into that? And we felt that if you had a software platform that solved problems and allowed organizations to make bigger and bigger investments into social care, that was a good thing for the entire industry. And we're right, because now you not only see people investing in technology, they're investing in paying for those interventions and reimbursing community-based organizations for those interventions. If we stay with the resource directory side of the house, that would never have happened. That would you would never start to see governments start to put a budget line item or request uh, funds from CMS or others. Can I pay for these interventions for this population? Can I give them food because that's part of their health? Can I pay for rent because that's part of their health? You know, I, I think that we have a, a, a we played a big role in expanding the industry because we knew where it needed to go, uh, and it ultimately impacts people's lives. It helps them. Like I would never in a million years give my mom or my best friend a list of resources if they were struggling and say, right. hey, go figure it out. No way. Right, right. So then how do I replicate that digital experience where I can help handhold that person and really provide that wraparound service? Because where the market was originally is an individual needed to work a network to get things done rather than what we've built where a network works for them. Yeah. And so that's the focus area of it's common sense. Like if you would never do that for the people you care about most in your life, why would you do that for the masses? Yeah. And there's an easy way to solve it. And uh, I think we just, we stuck to our guns and because one, it's, it's what we were building. Uh, it was what was important because outcomes were priority. And we knew that the market needed to move that way. I read a quote from you that that I really like, and I think it's a business or a philosophy uh, around entrepreneurship that that I agree and talk about a lot. Is that in in entrepreneurship there are no rules? And here's your quote: "There are no rules." And I use it like I tell people at business school this is this as well who are in finance or consulting. There's this formula that you can run through to make that career jump and you do X, Y, and Z, and it's going to give you some results. Whereas in entrepreneurship, there are formulas you can follow, but you have to break down those walls because when there are no rules, you uh, then you get to define what the world then sees or how they perceive certain things. And and I'd like you to elaborate that, elaborate that a bit because 
you know, so many people grow up, you do traditional schooling, you know, even in the military, you have rules you have to follow. And for those that make the leap into the entrepreneurial world, you know, it's very true to say, you know, no matter where you're doing business, for the most part, there are no rules, you know, within like, Mm -hmm. you know, ethical rules and then legal things that you have to follow along to. But for the most part, there's no rules. So, so if you could, could you dive down into that philosophy a bit more? Yeah, I think it's summed up in, there's really no limitations to your creativity. Yeah. Everything you just said was, is absolutely right. Like there are rules you have to follow, right? In my space, like I can't just share information with everybody out there because we're dealing in some cases with very sensitive stuff people that deal with domestic abuse, like I'm not sharing that with everybody that's part of our platform. So you have to set up permissioning levels. Yeah, There's obviously laws uh, that you that you have to follow as well. But when you're creating a business or you're looking to, to, to structure a deal or uh, get creative in how you approach a potential customer, you have full creative license. And so I think a lot of folks will set these imaginary boundaries for themselves where it's just like, well, this is, this is how we operate and mm-hmm. I can't go outside of that. But I think I've, I've learned from a, a bunch of different sectors. And so take music as an example and stay with me. I swear I'll get to a point like big artists that have like a unique voice. They don't sound like everybody else. They're a little bit different and athletes do things a little bit different or they you know make a big play or they they approach the game in a different way you can do the same thing with your own role your company and whatnot like being different is cool being different is the differentiator uh it's not kind of following in line and so from like the no rules component it gives you free license to be creative in all situations things don't have to be you know monotone and mundane and and you know matter of fact you can stretch the limits a little bit and even in the military i think everybody puts military folks in a box but like as an infantry officer you are taught like no mission no matter how much you plan how much you put into the the structure and the and the resources towards a particular objective no mission or no plan uh survives first contact meaning when that first round fires off or you know the mike tyson quote of somebody punches you in the mouth like things start to go awry a little bit. And so you're taught to deal with ambiguity and you're taught that in those moments where chaos ensues or something isn't exactly how you perceived it was going to be, or that didn't go to plan in those moments is the most opportunity. And the individuals and the organizations that set themselves apart are those that recognize that this isn't crisis. And this isn't like, Oh, the world's coming to an end, that this is an opportunity. Where most people take a step back is like, hey, I want to see how this 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 fold uh, this this plays out. My whole thing was just like, I'm moving forward, I'm executing. Like this is this is my chance where everybody else is taking a pause. I'm hitting the gas, mm-hmm. and so it's like it's like there are no rules that goes into creativity, and it's like recognizing in certain moments where you know it can even be in a conversation with a customer where they ask something very very difficult, and there's like a little bit of silence. Like I just have this something inside of me. It's just like it's my time. It's my time to step up. It's my time to act. And then I do. And I think from like the no rules component is you set the tone and you set the stage for how your organization operates uh, and everybody's looking, looking to you. And so if you're a creative individual and you push the boundaries and you, you write a contract in a different way, 
or a customer is looking for a solution and they only want your competitor and they, and for whatever reason, I haven't done a good job of explaining the differentiation of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And they ask for a quote from me. I will give them a quote and I'll make up a different product just to show that there's differentiation. Going back to that Kaiser Permanente example of, wait, what is this? And so then it then gives me an opportunity to re-explain. It's like, oh, well, you're comparing us to, to this organization. This is what they do. If that's what you want, here it is. But if you want the other stuff that we do, this is what it is. And it gives me another opportunity because I haven't sold it, but it's like, and sometimes that fails. They're like, yeah, get out. Damn, I messed <laughs> up. But it's like giving yourself that creative license to go. And so from a no rules uh, component, it's like, yes, there's boundaries that you have to play within, but creativity is, a, is, a, is another superpower, I believe. And yeah. it's, it's the ability to, you know, be cliche again of like think outside the box, but just approach a situation in a different way that maybe people aren't expecting you to. There's opportunity in that. I want to shift gears a little bit here, Taylor, and uh, ask you some more personal questions about mindset and leadership. If you were going to create a brain trust or the perfect mastermind, who would you put in it and why? And you can't say you're anybody in your current team. Oh, man. These are, these are some hard hitters. Uh, I feel like I'm just going to give like a really bad example now. <laughs> um, a brain trust. And so I guess let me, let me just make sure I'm defining this the appropriate way. It's just like if I'm approaching a problem or uh, looking for advice, here's the group I want around me. Correct. Is there any limitations to how many people I can have? No. And they can be living or dead. Okay. Man, this is a good one. First one would be Winston Churchill. I'm obviously a big military buff. I think he approached things in an unconventional way, the way he communicated, uh, the way he motivated during yeah. uh, desperate situations, the way he lived his life where he is this seems like a brute, is a political figure, but also uh, was an artist. You know, he loved to paint and there's so much depth to him. I think he would be someone that I could get some really cool advice, but also just have a good time with. I think he'd mm-hmm. be, I think he'd be great. And there's like, there's like the cocky confidence that I like about yeah. him. I think I would probably pull in uh, some sort of artist or a musician. And I'm forgetting her name. My mom and I, before the pandemic, we went to, we went to a Broadway show and I didn't know much about this, this, this lady, but she had basically writ- written almost every big hit that's out there. I think she has like a hundred of them. And I, I, I learned it and I'll have to find uh, the name of it. And I don't know why it's escaping me right now. God, it's, it's driving me nuts. I, I don't have to look it <laughs> up, but the Broadway show was basically about her life story okay. and how she came up and uh, how she thought about writing and the relationships that she had. And that, you know, as she continued to progress, you had individuals that wanted to kind of keep her down a little bit, either for their own glory or, or whatever. Maybe it's, maybe it's called glory. I don't, I don't know. I'll find it. And maybe we'll put it in, uh, in here afterward. But just the way that she leveraged and she thought about music and the, and the music that she wrote and who she wrote them for, but also her own personal journey to get there. I, I think I need to find her name, but I would want her around the table because it's just a different lens of someone from a completely different sector that's going to look at problems in a completely different way. Yeah. Uh, I think I would include her. Do you know one of her her songs, like Top of Mind? I'm going to look it up right now. Okay. Um, Yeah. Carol King? Carol King. Yes. Yes. I think, yes. Grayson saved Um, us on that one. 
Thanks, Grayson. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Carol King. What an absolute powerhouse. Like yeah. having her at the table, man, I think that would be, that would be amazing. Uh, and then my third, I'll, I'll go with three. My third would be uh, Iron Man uh, <laughs> as played, as played by uh, Robert Downey Jr. Okay. So um, not one, actual Robert Downey Jr., but Iron Man. Iron Man played by Robert Downey that version of him uh, okay that version of him okay. uh one because super smart i think thinks that things in a different way and is super innovative also has some uh some cockiness to him but also, also would just be I'm, I'm big on sarcasm and you know trying to make light of very intense situations i think that's how you kind of get through some difficult times through humor it's one of the things i, I learned in the military so i'm kind of i kind of gravitate towards it I think there would be obviously some some wise wisdom in direct communication. I am I appreciate cutting through the BS and just getting to uh, an answer like a very direct way. And I think his character does that. Obviously, there's intelligence behind it, but there would be you know the snarky sarcasm that would uh, create some levity uh, in some of those situations. And I think you put those three in a room, that'd be a pretty good time and a pretty good advisory board or nice. uh, brain trust. I'm going to have to check out more about Carol King and Iron Man. I haven't seen Iron Man before, so I'll put that on the, the list. Nice. Okay, next question. Start from zero. Start it, say you had to start again from zero. What do you do and you can't do anything in the health uh, medical tech field? So there are, I mean, I have like millions of ideas that I think would be great. One more serious is around affordable housing. Mm-hmm. In all of our communities, the top one, two, sometimes third need is housing. And the answer is not build more housing. So there has to be a way to make sure that people have a roof over their head that is safe and is conducive to keeping having a healthy family. I think there's, there's an area there and a big problem that needs to be solved. The next one is a little bit of a wild card. I think there's interesting things happening in like the sports gambling arena. Oh yeah. And there's, I think opportunities to not just bet on games, but to, to bet and make wagers uh, with your friends and your buddies in a more structured and efficient way. Yeah. uh, Where people could just have some, have some fun with it. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. The third would be something in golf. I don't know what it is. I set like this goal for myself during the pandemic. I, by the way, during the pandemic, i never really played golf, never took it seriously and got into it because uh, I was coo- cooped up in a, in a little apartment in New York city. And then a buddy asked me to go play golf and being outside for four hours. was like, just like eye opening freeing, <laughs> freeing moment where I was like, yeah. Oh man, this is awesome. Yeah. And it's so challenging and ridiculously hard. It just always keeps you guessing. And you could have like, the greatest round ever. And then the next day have your worst round ever. Mm -hmm. And there's like this, this constant battle that, that I enjoy something in like the, the golfing arena. Oh, and the, and the goal I set for myself is like, I wanted to qualify for the U S open again. I'm not good at golf. Still not (laughs) good at golf. Like this is such an outlandish goal uh-huh. to even try to qualify. It's not even to win. It's just like to be able to be selected. And even if I was selected, I might not play. Right. But it's just like to be able to like try to get yourself to that point. 
I'd set a goal as I wanted to do that within 10 years. Uh, and I am not on pace um, to, to get there. I just literally shot my worst round this weekend on Sunday that I've shot in probably 18 months. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm going back, I'm going backwards quick. <laughs> uh, but something in the golf world, it's just, it's just fun and lighthearted. And uh, I think I'd enjoy it. I like it. What's the best uh, business book you've ever read? My go-to is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. That's where I got the There Are No Rule. Um, mm. I stole it from him. I probably should have cited that earlier, but it, it's, it's, it's from his book that there are no rules. I think why I enjoy it so much is a lot of business books that are out there, I think at times are from academics and not from people that has, have actually built a business. I prioritize operators over academics because there's real life examples of what they did well, what they did bad, challenges they run into. And there's also the emotional component uh, of dealing with failure and success and you know everything that goes in between. And so that one always resonated with me because it, it, it was so personal to him. And there's like real world issues that they had to deal with and some of the greatest minds that he had around them and they still dealt with issues. Yeah. And so I just, I enjoy it, but I'm, I, I try to listen to audiobooks as much as possible. And so I'm a big self-help book guy. So if it's around negotiations or the history of an individual or the history of a business, those are things I gravitate to. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Last question here. We'll wrap things up. There's a lot of allure around the idea of people wanting to build a billion dollar company or become a billionaire and have that type of lifestyle, right? And what I've learned from interviewing a lot of these these folks is that none of them really wanted to start out doing that. It just happened because they were in service. So, and they, they picked the right business model at the right time. What What's the advice you would give you know, young entrepreneurs that think it'd be really cool to build a billion dollar company, what what would you tell them to focus on? Not building a billion dollar company. Yeah. Um, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and I understand you're trying to to sell yourself and hey, this market's really, really big and this is where we can be because that's what attracts investors because it's it's about the dollars and cents. But that is a little bit of a a show's not the right word, but that is a, a pitch that you're giving because you're trying to receive funding to then grow your business. And where I see entrepreneurial pitch decks fail a little bit is they want to do everything under the sun. Mm -hmm. They're trying to boil the ocean and they have all these really good ideas and we can go in this direction and everything they're pitching you is five years down the road, but they haven't really thought through how they get through that first 12 to 18 months. And usually within that first 12 to 18 months, you have to be hyper-focused. And you have to find that the the area where you can be the best at. And usually it's not all of those things. Yeah. And so it's like having a focus and small steps over time and those consistent small steps over time build into something great. And you have to realize that it's going to take way longer than you expect. If you try to do too much, you'll be a master of none. And the second piece is most of them don't have a sales plan. Hey, this market is, is so big. I'm going to be able to, to, to generate this type of, of revenue. And they have no idea who the, the actual buying customer is, how much they're willing to pay, the strategy to get in front of those buying customers. What does their uh, contracting process look like? They haven't thought through all of that. They have this great idea and how they're going to build tech or how they're going to provide certain services, but they have no plan on how they're actually going to sell it, which is 
the name of the game in a, in a for-profit entity. Yeah. And so lack of focus uh, of trying to do too much and no real sales plan of how you're actually going to make it happen. And even all of those presentations, by the way, are an are a educated guest. And so when someone gives me a pitch and they are confident that everything is going to be perfect, that's immediate red flag for me. Like I want an entrepreneur that's going to give me the truth. And that's going to be like, I've made uh, some assumptions. I've taken some liberties. Here's what my thesis is. But these are some inflection points where I might need to make a decision or maybe make a slight adjustment, not a full pivot, but maybe an adjustment. Those are the folks that I know they're going to be very transparent with me. They're going to be transparent with their team. And it's not just like, I am the entrepreneur that's going to solve this. And I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, I, I don't like, I don't like egos in, in people that pump their chest up a little bit because shit's hard and you're going to run into hard days. And if you're that type of leader, are those people going to follow you? They might not. Yeah. And it comes down to the, the people that are in charge of that business because you can have the greatest idea in the world, but if you can't execute, you're dead in the water. And so those are some of the pitfalls I see. Well put, well put. I think that's a great way to end the podcast, Taylor. And I want to say I really appreciate you sharing all your tips and tricks and pieces of wisdom with us. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you guys have going on, where's the best place they can do that at? Yeah. So uniteus.com, we just updated our, our website not so long ago. So we have everything under the sun on the platform about the products, case studies of where we've done uh, things. We have a podcast of myself and Esther Farkas, who's our chief strategy officer at Unite Us, just started to kind of interview different leaders across social healthcare and general business. Uh, What's the name of the podcast? Is it United? It's called it's it's called What Unites Us. It'll be coming okay. out in early 2023. And so we have our first slate of interviews that are already completed. So we have them all ready to go. Uh, we're just doing a little bit of uh, of editing on those, but we talk about a lot of things. Uh, we talk about some Unite Us stuff, but also a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. Like, where are some of the challenges that people faced? But how is it connecting to people and connecting to to others that allow for magical things to happen? Yeah. Um, and so I would go to uniteus.com and then we'll have the stuff up on, on what unites us whenever it whenever it comes out. But that's the best place to go. Nice. Again, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. And uh, there's so much of this that I really enjoyed, but especially I love that lesson that there's no rules in entrepreneurship and one that I think I'm continually learning over and over again in my career as an entrepreneur, because it never really ends because you can always just keep going to the next level with that. So I really appreciate that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. Uh, Listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.